Good morning and welcome to today's FS Club webinar on helping to unlock finance for SMEs in the race to zero with Gavin Starks, founder and CEO at Icebreaker One, which connects finance, industry and environmental data to help business deliver. During this webinar, Gavin will be reaching us on Perseus, a whole of market solution to create rapidly scalable, low effort, low friction sustainability reporting, with the goal of helping unlock access to capital by automating GHG reporting for every SME in the country. Perseus is backed by the UK government and has been included in this year's green finance strategy. Gavin's work spans data infrastructure, policy, science, media, communications and innovation including as co-chair of the Open Banking Standard, founding CEO of the Open Data Institute, advisor to the Financial Conduct Authority, and many more. He regularly provides strategic advice to governments, regulators, and intergovernmental organizations around the world. And Gavin's fun fact is he converted a century-old cargo ship to live aboard and built a cooperative historic harbor on the Thames to put it on. Now, if we haven't met yet virtually or in person, I'm Charlotte Dorbrashley and I manage the FS Club for ZM. I'd like to warmly acknowledge our very generous sponsors who enable us to continue to bring you a wide range of thought-provoking content across finance, technology and economics. As usual, the slides for this presentation are publicly available on our website and in the chat box. We'll record this session and it will be available to watch on our website within 48 hours. And we're holding a 20-minute Q&A session after Gavin's presentation. So please use the GoToWebinar chat facility to send your questions in to me, and then I'll feed them into the conversation. Now, without further ado, it's my pleasure to hand over to you, Gavin. Thank you, Charlotte. Uh, let me just share my screen here. There we go. So welcome everyone. It's good to connect with you today. Uh, as you heard, my name is Gavin Starks. I'm the founder of Icebreaker One. We're an independent non-profit really focused on the, the data infrastructure behind Net Zero. But I wanted to start today with maybe a bit of an existential question about why we are here. And why we are here is due to this very, very thin layer of our upper atmosphere, which um, when you look at it from space, and, and um, my background is originally in astrophysics, uh, is an incredibly fragile uh, thing when you look at this uh, at the scale. It'd probably take you about an hour if you're driving at speed uh, to go from the bottom of it to the, the, the top of the bit that's uh, important to us at this stage. And really the, the challenge that we're facing is that climate change is upon us. This is not a future challenge, it is a today challenge. And, and the um, theme of this talk very much is around the time for theory being over. We really must get on and act uh, here. But I'm gonna start from uh, a point um, which may seem a little abstract, but will become hopefully clear as we go through this. I want to talk a little bit about data. Uh, I've spent um, most of my professional career working uh, with data uh, and the science and business and how we bring these different uh, things together. And we've got this incredible uh, thing that we've built over the last you know, 40 years now called the web. And when you look at building data ecosystems, there's a huge economic return in those benefits. And you, we've seen this just from a, um, a core business case of connecting data, so enabling uh, data ecosystems to exist and thrive, uh, we can see uh, huge returns. 
And we can also um, point at you know, more than half the world's data is unused, it's dark data. So just from a, an investment case here, making more of our data is a really good idea. Uh, but the way that we tend to have done that this in the past is we try and put it all in one place and, and put a uh, kind of paywall on it. And that's really not the way that we need to solve a multidisciplinary challenge, because the challenge here is we've got to sustain over 8 billion people while hitting peak everything everywhere all at once. And that spans a whole range of different areas from energy uh, to waste to water and uh, biodiversity. Uh, crisis and so on. So we've got this massive set of systemic challenges, but fortunately we've got some prior thinking here. And this is actually from uh, Thinking Systems from Danella Meadows, believe it or not, way back in 1993, which is missing information flows are one of the most common causes of systems malfunction. And adding or restoring information can be as powerful and easier to do in many cases than rebuilding our physical infrastructure. So you'll see the theme here of how can we use what we've got more effectively and more efficiently? How can we connect it uh, using the web? Obviously, when this quote uh, was written, uh, the web was only just uh, in its infancy. And, uh, and so the challenge then when we come and, and look at this, and we're in 2023, some considerable uh, pace forward, there are now more people online than existed when I was born, and there's more machines online than people. So we've got this digital first world that we're already living in. And, we, and so it's very difficult to see when you're in the middle of an exponential change, because when you're looking at short term, it's not easy to see. When you look at long term, you think, oh, that was something that was, was changing very quickly. And what uh, we try and, uh, to do then in terms of change organizational behaviors this is very much a, a, a core cultural change as well as is, is your organization thinking digitally or is it thinking physically and most organizations that um, we work with tend to be working very much in the physical world and they're very early still even though we're you know, decades into the web revolution they're still quite early in terms of digital thinking by default uh, and again this idea of centralizing everything before we can do any work uh, is prevalent across most organizations when we need to think of it in a more decentralized and distributed way. And so when we think about data, data is never about technology. For me, it's not the new oil, uh, many metaphors there that we definitely don't want, particularly when we're talking about climate change. Um, but really, data unlocks business value, but critically, data increases in value the more it's connected. Uh, and that's again a theme I'm going to come back on uh, throughout this. And when we look at um, where we are today in this kind of systems thinking world, we can't, you know, the usual uh, sort of trope of we can't manage what we don't measure, but we can't act on what we don't trust. And so bringing stability and trust to data sharing will enable the market to invest. Uh, and again, let's pick on some examples there. So open banking, which I was fortunate to co-chair, uh, the development of really, for me, embodied the principles of the web in a regulatory instrument. Uh, and what it did there is it mandated that the banks must be interoperable, not just technically interoperable, so you can exchange information between banks and between banks and application vendors like accounting packages and so on, but legally interoperable. So there's a liability transfer, there's data rights addressed, and there's all of the 
non-technical things addressed in that. And because we open source the standard, it's now been copied in over 80 countries. It's a $20 billion market. And there's hundreds of fintechs just in the UK uh, using uh, the, the standard now to share information. And so there's data portability and sharing at market-wide scale. It is secure and it is protected and it protects the, the rights of all of the actors in the middle there. And the reason I mention that is it's a really good um, blueprint on which to build. So when we look at the net zero data ecosystem, we've suddenly got this world where finance needs information, not just from the financial economy, but from the real economy. So my preamble there saying, well, look, we've got data everywhere coming at us from sensors, uh, coming at us uh, across the web, the web of data, if you like. That data now needs to come into the financial sector in a way that we can trust. And I'd say there's a crisis of trust right now. Um, we need information in from the energy sector, from the water sector, from transport, the built world. That needs to be modelled into everything from demand response to uh, looking at uh, risk modelling and uh, exposure modelling uh, and looking at where our stranded assets are and so on. And if we can't trust the data in, how are we going to make financial decisions? And there's a, a kind of argument here as well. Is I mean, it's taken us many centuries to get to the point where there's a decent audit structure around finance. And that's just one type of data, just money. Uh, and that's taken us a very long time. Now we're seeing hundreds of other pieces of data coming into the financial markets uh, from the real economy. Why is that happening? Well, it's not just that it's um, people are thinking it's a good idea. It's regulated. It's becoming more and more regulated. So the regulators are mandating reporting for large companies and for the financial sector itself, and particularly with the banks. And when you look at this ecosystem, uh, if anyone actually has a, a good understanding of the entire uh, greenhouse gas reporting uh, ecosystem, hats off, it's incredibly complex. Uh, there's always something new coming to market. But at one level, we could look at this as there's a top-down mandate coming from governments uh, around the world, informed by the climate science and the IPCC, being turned into standards and frameworks for disclosure and reporting, and whether that's carbon disclosure projects or the work of uh, the IFRS and ISSB. Uh, again, acronym soup here, but the International Sustainability Standards Board is working towards global standards for sustainability reporting. But they're all quite high level, and some of them are incredibly complex and involved and when we most of the uh, reporting standards also then point to particular protocols like the greenhouse gas protocol uh, for the actual assessment uh, and those are then used by carbon accounting tools those carbon accounting tools need to take the assessment methods models and real economy data so the consumption data uh, ultimately turn that into reports feed that uh, those reports into auditors feed those reports into the markets. Uh, but to quote one of the um, audit firms uh, that um, I was speaking to recently, I won't, won't name them, but they say, you know, effectively, they can assure a process has been followed, but they can't assure the data at the moment. Uh, and because of the way that the uh, reporting frameworks are framed and how then they can be implemented, you can kind of choose what you want uh, to report uh, in the mix here. So it's a bit of a random number generator. Uh, and that obviously doesn't give any level of uh, degree of trust uh, onto the important right-hand side 
uh, of this diagram, which is the ratings providers and, and the general markets. How do we trust uh, the information that's being provided through this system? And we're getting to the point now where we're even seeing what's called green hushing, where people are shying away from publishing data, partly because they don't trust it or they don't have the uh, assurance around it or the confidence around it, partly because they're concerned about uh, liability. Uh, and so that doesn't help us either. We need to move to a more trustworthy environment rather than shying away and going back to PDF files and forward-looking statements. So there's a mechanism here where we need to improve the data flow here and the, the orange arrows to be much more aligned with the way that we do financial reporting. There needs to be clear audit trail, it needs to be very scalable and so on. So that comes that brings us on to Perseus. So Perseus has been uh, created uh, through a multi-sector, uh, um, cross-sector uh, collaboration. We've got a, a number of different organizations involved from government, trade associations, academia and, and commercial sector to work out how can we um, engender trust here in this reporting framework. Uh, and at the heart of that, the banks. The banks carry a liability at the moment. They have mandatory reporting on what's called scope three financed emissions. So any form of loan, they must now report uh, the greenhouse gas uh, emissions around uh, as to who they're lending to. So they now have to report effectively on all of their SME customers. So the question then is how does a bank um, footprint all of their customers uh, in a credible and trustworthy way? Uh, and that's a, that's a huge challenge. It's not just a reporting framework uh, question though, it's also the, the really tough question in here is so what question? What difference does it make? So what we've heard from the banks is that the cost of green lending at the moment is high uh, and that is partly down to the absence of trustworthy data. So they have said to us uh, that if we can get access, if the banks can get access to more credible, trustworthy data from the uh, real economy, it'll reduce the cost of capital uh, and reduce the cost of lending so they can do more green lending. Uh, and so the mechanism here that we're building on on the left-hand side is a collaboration to bring people together saying, what rules do you want to use? This is not about creating a new reporting standard. It's saying, how do we create an assurable and verifiable way of doing uh, things that are aligned with the existing uh, reporting frameworks? But as uh, anyone working at the front line of this uh, knows that that um, can get quite uh, varied uh, depending on how people actually implement at the front line. So it's more about harmonization of approach on the left-hand side. How can we say, well, let's uh, make the same reports so we can uh, have comparability, uh, but let's also get the data sharing here from the real economy uh, in a way that the application vendors can actually have robust uh, and traceable information in the mix. So here it's, it's really about creating impact for SMEs, how can we unlock access uh, to capital for the SMEs from the banks with better assurable data at the heart of that. So let me, let me just unpack uh, that um, a little more, is at the moment the banks are and uh, large organisations who have mandatory reporting typically are writing to their customers and asking them to fill in a questionnaire. 
so you might have an SME who, let's take an you know, example of a dairy farmer, they'll get different questionnaires uh, for the same milk from the same cows in the same shed. Uh, and the outcome of that typically is that the dairy farmer says, I don't have the time, I don't really understand this, I don't have any money to deal with it, actually could you make it go away? And I don't necessarily even trust the process because I'm being asked different questions and they're giving me different answers. So we need a way of making it really trivial for the SMEs to engage here. So we're starting uh, with um, the uh, high level uh, buy-in. So as uh, Charlotte mentioned there, we've got support from uh, Minister Stewart uh, and uh, engagement from Innovate Finance uh, and engagement in fact at the top level uh, from a whole range of different uh, trade associations. It's how do we go far together on this journey? So we've got the, the ICAW and the ILD, my co-chair alongside the British Business Bank. We've got the Federation of Small Businesses uh, and various other uh, trade associations. And the purpose of pulling all of these uh, different organisations together is we see, and I've certainly been part of, I'm sure many of us have, lots of different initiatives that try and tackle this problem uh, and one of the ways that uh, one of the lessons learned from open banking was if you get the right actors in the room at the steering group level it can take the whole market forward so we're fortunate here we've um, partnered with bankers for net zero which is the uk country chapter of the net zero banking alliance uh, that in itself is part of the gfans uh, race to zero and, and uh, unep finance initiative uh, so the UK is really uh, taking a leading role here where we've got international optics. There's a lot of uh, international observers looking at how we're uh, doing uh, this. And we've got the constituent parts, if you like, of the on the steering group here representing all the stakeholders uh, that uh, we, we feel are, are relevant uh, to this journey. So the next step of this is how do we, how do we build out this you know, coalition of the willing uh, so we've got a number of founding commercial partners now that includes uh, sage and natwest and hsbc say so how are we going to go about this uh, now there is a, a logo on this uh, you might not recognize which is data communications company uh, and smart dcc as they're called have all of the smart meter data in the country uh, for domestic and uh, sme users there's over a million uh, smart meters uh, for SMEs in there and that's that's very relevant because the you can tell from the complexity of this um, ecosystem that trying to do anything complicated is going to be uh, adding an exponential amount of uh, complexity to the, the relationships so we're trying to do two things with Persis one is to build a coalition uh, that enables whatever decisions are made to land and be implementable and to be taken out to the membership. And, and one of the reasons we've got the trade associations on the steering board there is they will help lead the messaging with their own members. So there's a go far together component of this. Uh, and then the other thing, given that going far together is, is hard, we need to really reduce what we're trying to do. So we're starting with electricity. It's not the end point, it's the start point. And the vision here, and this is a, just a slide mock-up, is that if, as an SME logs into their online bank, they're presented with some form of uh, interstitial that says we'd like to automate the carbon footprinting, 
for free. Uh, but rather than filling in any forms, we'd like you to consent to sharing your energy, your electricity data. So I'm starting with that. So then we can validate that. And, and you, for anyone who's used open banking, it's exactly the same process. Uh, that can uh, then, the data can then flow into uh, the bank's carbon accounting application. Again, in, in this mock-up, uh, we've picked NatWest uh, and Sage as examples. There are many other iterations of that that we expect. And what the applications can then do, the likes of Sage Earth, is take that electricity information in on a 30-minute basis from the smart meter. And that's aligned with kind of gold standards you get from um, the standards bodies. Uh, and they can start to baseline and benchmark and, and look at uh, the SME's profile, uh, including their financial profile and their sector and so on, and start making recommendations. Now, those recommendations might involve, for example, install a heat pump. Now, the type of advantage here is as soon as that uh, recommendation has been made, the bank can say, well, we, we could give you a preferential loan. And we've already got some of the banks saying they will do maybe a 15-bit difference uh, on uh, loan instruments if they can get shareable data. But what would happen here is once the heat pump's been installed, the actual consumption data uh, would come through the system uh, the following day after it had been switched on. Um, but there's a, it's a nuance to this, and the reason we're building on open banking is there's two elements to this. There's the go far together, which is co-defining the rules, bringing together these different um, uh, organizations to say, what do they need, both from a user needs point of perspective, from a technical perspective, from a legal perspective, uh, from a policy perspective, uh, and how does that fuel the whole market? So what we can't do and what we shouldn't do is try and build a big central database because the data is in many, many places. There's over 150 energy retailers in the UK, and there's many hundreds of carbon calculators, and there's many dozens of banks. So it's a many-to-many -many relationship. So back to my kind of starting point here, it's already federated. The idea that everybody would put everything in one place uh, is uh, not scalable and will not work. But we've got some uh, starting conditions here where we can say, with open banking, there's at the heart of open banking is a thing called trust framework. And that trust framework is a very thin layer. It's quite a big circle on this diagram, but it's, it's an incredibly thin layer. On the left-hand side here, we've got collaborative design of the rules of the game. And in the middle, the trust framework, all it really does is codify the rules. And then it enables organizations to sign up to those rules. So you'll see on the right-hand side here, the applications, the data sources uh, are all verified by the trust framework. The trust framework doesn't hold any of the data. The data goes directly from the data source. In this case, uh, again, we're starting with a smart meter. We'll add on lots of different dimensions to that over time. But it goes directly from the data source to the application, and in this case, with the consent of the end customer. So you see there that the approach we're taking, um, this is exactly how open banking works. If you want to share a current account statement uh, with an, an accounting application, here you're just replacing that current account statement with your effectively energy statement or smart meter data and so on. And because the organizations are verified, the process itself can be verified by the auditors, but the, so can the data. 
Uh, and so we're working with the uh, consultants in the audit community to say how are we going to define what assurance and verification means in this process because once the application vendor has produced the carbon reports and sent that back up the chain into a bank or an insurance company or another uh, type of financial uh, services organization that can also be verifiable and that can also that provenance can be um, chained straight away uh, through to the regulators as well but at the heart of this uh, the bit that we're uh, building in the middle of it with Perseus is this trust framework um, and just to, to summarize what that means we're trying to arrive at common rules how do you create cohesion across the market based on existing standards there's not a creation of new standards here I have to emphasize that uh, the outcome is interoperability at national scale so how do you get every bank every energy company doing it the same way to do that, it needs to be legal. It has to have the data rights addressed, the liability addressed, and rules of redress addressed. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we have government involved is their questions are twofold. One is, how do we protect SMEs from misuse of this information? On the flip side, if this um, starts to scale, how do we create incentives? For example, it could be tax incentives uh, around this become possible in a way that they aren't at the moment. Um, but you need to do this within an assured and secure framework with the consent of the SME. You need to take the SME on the journey and it needs to be universal. Again, so all of these things point at why we as an organisation work as a non-profit because we have to sit separately uh, to the rest of the, the market. So just in closing, I've got one call to action, which when you're thinking about data is to connect, don't collect all of it. So with that, I will stop. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you very much, um, Gavin. That was really impressive. You've got an impressive range of partners there um, and definitely some fascinating statistics as well. Um, moving on to audience questions now. Um, so Dan Feeney has said that data silos and IPRI preservation seem to hamper data sharing, especially as open banking tries to expand horizontally across finance. How can we square the entrenched battle amongst identity, security, and privacy? And is a trust framework enough to change this mindset and behavior? That's a great question. And um, I think what, you know, just reflecting on the success of open banking, um, I think one of the reasons open banking has been successful is got, again, nothing to do with technology. I think when I look at what's worked in data sharing schemes around the world, open banking has been one of the most successful. It still has lots of issues, but it's been one of the most successful because what it does is it creates a legal basis for sharing. And so you can have the same information shared in different ways with different rules. Uh, and I think when we look at data, you know, you can take electricity consumption information. Thousands of organizations want access to that for different uses. So you can't create really a top-down set of rules that covers all use cases. You have to wade into it and say, well, what's the legal basis for sharing? And a critical component of that is modes of redress and liability transfer. So ultimately, one of the ways I think about open banking success is it's a framework for data sharing where everybody can sue each other. Uh, and, and that's an incredibly important um, market dynamic 
because once you've got those frameworks in place, it means people can, particularly the legal um, and compliance side, say that we have a basis um, to go ahead with this in a way that has the right uh, risks and control mechanisms uh, addressed within the framework. So I, the, there isn't a perfect answer to that, but I'd say that in terms of the effort to reward um, balance here, at one level, open banking is incredibly straightforward. Uh, on another level, it's incredibly complex because it tries to bring all of these different actors together. And I think that it's, what I've observed as well is that there is no technical magic, magic bullet for this. None of, none of what we're doing, for example, uses a blockchain or a distributed ledger technology. We, I just don't see it as relevant to, to what we're doing. And actually, it's a really high, it has quite a high cost of um, implementation because it's technical friction. Not that any technology is particularly hard to deploy, but anyone who's running a large uh, organization knows that any implementation of any technology has a massive cost to it. Uh, and so at the heart of things like open banking and over the last uh, two, three years, we've built open energy under um, Icebreaker One as well, is just a mandate to say, have an open API. You know, that exposes the data to the market. And then the hard bit is say, are you allowed to use it and who's allowed to sue each other and who's got permission and who doesn't. And so the trust framework approach enables market participants to sign up to a set of collective goals. So hopefully that gives you some uh, uh, sense of the um, direction of travel. Maybe one other important thing I can touch on here is at the moment we've got the data bill going through uh, Parliament. Uh, there's a section in there that effectively indicates do open banking across the rest of the economy. Uh, and there's a smart data council that has been created that um, brings together half a dozen uh, different government uh, departments and uh, Ofgem and uh, Ofcom and a, a bunch of others and a few non-profits including Icebreaker One. Uh, and our role there, our mandate is to apply the principles of open banking across the economy. Uh, and there'll, there'll be lots of challenges there. And, and there again, from my perspective, none of them are technical. Uh, they're mostly all political with a, a lowercase p about how do we get everybody to go together. And Persis for me is a great example of this because it's mission led. And the, if I was to put one thing at the top of the list in any collaborative development is if you've got a very clear and narrow use case that everyone can align around and see the benefit of, then you can make progress because everyone can see what it's, what's in it for them. and from a legal point of view, you can put the controls and limit liability around that use case. Thank you, that was very comprehensive. Uh, moving on to Gabby's question now, she said, is uh, Perseus already live or is this a pilot stage? And what are the first operational experiences? For example, uh, response rate, use feedback, success rate? Yeah, we're very, very early on the journey. So we launched uh, the initiative at Parliament, uh, I think two months ago. Uh, so we've been moving incredibly quickly uh, this year. The ambition is to build a demonstrator by COP this year, so that's in December, uh, which is incredibly quick uh, from uh, everybody's perspective, including ours. But it comes back to the, the start of my talk, you know, the time for theory is over. We've just got to get on and act. So a lot of the lessons learned we're bringing to this is to say that we have many thousands of unknowns. 
the way that we're tackling that is we've created obviously the top level steering group. We've also created five advisory groups uh, which cover the user needs, the technical needs, legal and data rights, communications and policy. Uh, and those advisory groups are populated with the users, you know, so the banks, the carbon accounting applications, SMEs themselves, uh, bits of government and so on. So the practitioners are co-designing what they need and our role as a, a non-profit uh, in the middle of that is to um, enable uh, people to connect and drive the whole initiative forward. So we're the catalyst in, in that to say, as, as and when we hit blockers, how do we unblock them? Because typically that's nobody's job, that has to sit outside uh, any one organization. So the combination here, the, the, the architecture of the initiative is designed to try and break through any blockers. Because if there's something that the advisory groups hit, we can escalate that to a steering group and somebody within that steering group can have an opinion that helps take it forward. So the objective for this year is mostly around design and the creation of a, a demonstrator. Next year, we'll have a much more detailed plan about how this can get to market. Um, but we're strongly encouraging any organization who wants to get involved now just to get in, get, get on the train and help us uh, co-design this. Uh, this has to be a collaborative initiative. And so the more voices in the, those advisory groups uh, and around the initiative, uh, the better. Thank you. I'm glad you're sticking to your motto there. And would you be happy for members of the audience to contact you if they want to get involved in yes, some of the Great. We'll share um, Gavin's contact details in the chat box um, and on the webpage afterwards. I think um, now that we've listened to the presentation, I think we might have a poll question ready to see um, what your thoughts are on this. Is that available to load, um, Sasha? Here we go. So um, is the finance, after listening to this presentation, do you think the finance sector is moving fast enough in terms of solving the climate emergency? Yes, must try harder or no? Just leave that up um, for a few seconds longer. You may have had a different view at the start of this presentation. Hopefully this has encouraged a more positive answer. Okay. Right, let's... Um, see what everyone thinks. Okay, so we've got 25% um, say yes, 33% say must try harder, and 42% say no. It's definitely more positive than I um, thought it would have been. Yeah, me too, actually. Yeah. Yeah. One, of the, one of the challenges, I think, in, in all of this is the, the link between uh, capital deployment and risk, it still, in my view, has a very long way to go. And, and obviously it's core to what we're trying to address in the mix here. I think one of the challenges, if you look at the uh, number of questions in a lot of these top-down reporting frameworks, we know that most organizations are struggling to really understand what they need to do, what the potential positive outcomes could be from uh, from all of that, what the potential negatives might be, but it's just highly complex. And most highly complex things lead to inertia uh, just because people need time to, to work it through. So one of the things we're trying to do here is take a bottom-up approach and say, 
what one piece of information would move the needle on your lending behaviour, uh, and how does that then link into the uh, ratings agencies and so on. With a parallel program, we work with a, another group called the Future of Sustainable Data Alliance, or FOSDA, uh, whose members include uh, LSEG and Moody's, S&P, Bloomberg, and so on. Uh, and so we're also asking the question there, what is it that they need from a, a ratings perspective to really inform uh, material ratings? And there's a study from MIT that came out, I think, last year that looked at the ESG ratings for individual companies across the different ratings agencies, and there was a substantial spread. So I think they, the, there's many challenges in here. And one of them is, you know, as an investor, how do you know that you are uh, going to see the outcome, the environmental income, uh, outcome, uh, not just the financial outcome from the investments you're making? And I think from our point of view, one of the ways that that could be instrumented is to create mandates for data provision as part of the investment. You know, so whether that's through procurement, through whether it's through the uh, investment uh, process as a condition to say you've got to supply this information, you can benchmark before a project starts, ad sensors, there's plenty of you know hundreds of commercial vendors out there that can can instrument uh, developments and then monitor it on a continuous basis. The cost of doing that is orders of magnitude less than it was even five, 10 years ago. So we're, we're, this, we're in this very different environment now where uh, there's a lot of potential and equally a lot of people don't want to measure things because it's gonna tell them things they don't wanna know. So I think it's, it's a lot of tensions in the mix there, but yeah, it was very encouraged to see so many people saying either yes or must try harder, but, uh, I would agree with a lot of the no's. We've got a long way to go yet. Yeah, I was surprised there were yeses in there, in fact. Um, Uncle uh, Gaviaro has asked, I think you've sort of touched on most of this already, um, but he's asked about the implementation timeframe uh, and major milestones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so our first major milestone was to launch, uh, which was two months ago. Uh, and the Next one is, is this demonstrator for the end of this year, COP is in, in December. Uh, in Q4 of this year, we're going to be creating the follow-on plan. As you can tell, this is very much an iterative development project. We're not, we haven't set out and said, you know, here's the, the five-year detailed plan. Our reasonable expectation, I think, is we've got enough momentum now in the system that we can realistically say that there could be something in the market next year. Uh, the questions linked to that are, one, obviously we're starting with electricity, uh, and the second, we've got that information flow through to the carbon accounting firms and the banks, and the second, that a bank is make, making a lending decision based on that information flow. I think it will just prove out the model and, and everyone will get in, on that particular train. The questions then are, what next? Uh, is it a question of saying, well, let's do more um, energy types? Is it looking at uh, water or um, transport and so on? Is it looking upstream from SMEs into enterprises? Is it looking downstream into domestic? Uh, or is it looking beyond the UK? You, you've seen on the slides there we had the, we've got the International Chambers of Commerce and the OECD and the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change as observers this process. If this is successful, then we want to see it expand uh, along multiple dimensions. And it could be you know, one of those 
potential expansion vectors is going from banking into insurance or asset management. So that's uh, maybe a long-winded way of saying one of the big challenges here in going far together is containment. So our main focus is can we do one thing well to begin with, build the processes and structures and the rails, if you like, for decision-making, and then use that and say, how quickly can organizations actually move? I think you know, when we look back at um, open banking, it was lightning speed. You know, once we actually got the go-ahead from that, in that case, it was Treasury and, and you know, backing from the Chancellor, uh, we wrote the initial standard in three months. It was then regulated within 12 months. And then it took you know, three or four years to get to market because it had never been done before. So everything had to be created from scratch. My hope in all of this, and, and this is what we will uh, flush out in the next you know, six, 12 months, is that all of the infrastructure here in terms of, well, we've done it before with banking, we've done it with energy, we've got a clear and present need and a sense of urgency, is the question then will be how quickly can the organisations themselves move uh, in terms of their own decision-making processes. And there we're seeing the usual spectrum of uh, leaders and followers, uh, but some of the leaders I think will get there very quickly. Well, you've certainly built a lot of uh, momentum very quickly, which is very encouraging to see. So let's hope um, that continues. I think we might have to get you back in a year's time to update us on how things are going. Absolutely. Um, comments come in thanking you for a really interesting talk, uh, which brings me to the end of the webinar this morning. So thank you again, Gavin, for sharing your time and work with us. That was um, really nice to have a really positive, encouraging conversation. And also thank you to our sponsors for making these webinars possible. And of course, uh, to you, our audience, for logging in and contributing to the discussion today. Don't forget to check out the forthcoming events page on our website. We've got um, a lot more, a lot more webinars coming up before the end of the month. Um, we've got financing for steel sector decarbonisation, which is quite relevant to today on Wednesday. And next week we've got Ford um, and the UK government and Supreme Court at odds, which should prove interesting. And then on Thursday the 31st, the use of DLT in capital markets. Thank you very much, everyone. I hope to see you in the future, uh, in the near future, at another webinar. And thanks again, Gavin. Goodbye. Thank you.